It is a fantastic practice area. I'm Beatrice Collier. And I'm Georgina Wolfe. And this is the Pupillage Podcast, brought to you by Middle Temple and us, your hosts. From celebrity super injunctions and Holocaust-denying historians to Twitter spats and trolling reviews on the internet, media and defamation law promises never to be boring. But what is it really like to have a media and defamation practice? This episode, we speak to Felicity McMahon and Master Adrienne Page, both of 5RB, about their practices. We hear about night lawing for the press, Friday night emergency injunctions, representing Private Eye and taking on Apple pro bono. Felicity McMahon was called to the bar in 2008 and is a media barrister practising at 5RB. Before joining Chambers, Felicity spent two years in the legal policy team at the Ministry of Justice, was a research assistant in the Law Commission's public law team and a legal intern in the Office of the Prosecutor at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. She now acts for both claimants and defendants in cases involving defamation, privacy, confidence, data protection, copyright, access to journalistic material, contempt, harassment and injunctive relief. She also provides pre-publication advice to book publishers and newspapers from The Times to The Sun and has spent time working with the in-house legal team of The Times and The Sunday Times and the legal and compliance team at Channel 4. Felicity has also provided on-set advice in relation to a nameless feature film. She tweets from Bit of a Legal Geek. Thank you very much and welcome to the Pupilage podcast, Felicity. Thank you for having me. So Felicity, is a media law practice as glamorous as it sounds? Uh, It can be. Um, As a junior, you're not usually doing the most glamorous cases. Uh, But some cases are quite glamorous. They're against or for or against television companies or um, newspaper publishers. Others are a bit more mundane, people suing each other about what they've said on Facebook or Twitter um, or in the parish newsletter can be quite common. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, have you, have you actually had a parish newsletter case? Um, I have not, but uh, colleagues have. Uh, churches, local uh, clubs are quite a hotbed of rivalry and occasionally defamation. When you say glamorous, you mentioned TV and film companies. Can you give our listeners some other ideas of what, what the top most glamorous part of your practice might involve? Uh, it either involves celebrities, colleagues of mine in chambers have done all of the big celebrity cases, so the phone hacking cases, which is everyone from Sadie Frost um, to Hugh Grant, uh, yeah. Paul Weller's privacy case, uh, all those sorts of big cases are done by colleagues of mine in chambers. Uh, so that can be quite glamorous. I've done work for, for example, I, I did the legal work on Big Brother for a couple of years for <gasps> Channel 5. Oh, wow. That can be quite fun. You get to go on the stage and look at all the placards on the Friday evening to check if they're all right or not, at which you get a big boo when the lawyer is introduced. <laughs> and if, like me, you fall down the stairs on the way out, a big cheer. <laughs> <laughs> so did you always know that you wanted to practice media law? No, um, I didn't, because I don't really remember doing it as an undergraduate. There was perhaps one or maybe even half a lecture on it in my taught module. Uh, I did a four-year degree, including a year abroad in Spain, so I didn't get to do as many options as some undergraduates because I had to do Spanish and 
European comparative law. So I never studied media law, uh, at least until I did my master's degree, where one of my modules was comparative human rights law, which did include freedom of speech versus privacy across various jurisdictions. Uh, but really, I was more into public law, human rights law, that sort of thing, and had a quite winding journey to end up at media law, where I am now. Uh, so, so tell us about it. What went right? What went right really was following the opportunities where they lead. So um, after bar school, I spent a year at the Law Commission as a research assistant in the public law team on the Glamorous uh, Level Crossings project. More interesting than it sounds, but I won't spend a lot of time on it. (laughs) At the end of that, I hadn't got pupillage and needed a job uh, for the next year. And luckily an opportunity came up at the Ministry of Justice, which is sort of the parent ministry for the Law Commission, doing a project on mortgage law. Again, not the most interesting project in the world, but a job uh, for the next year. Marvellous. That was in, as as Beatrice has said, the legal policy team, which I don't know if it still exists in the Ministry of Justice, but as you can imagine, it covers a multitude of sins. That is basically everything that they can't find another policy home for, which included defamation. What is now the Defamation Act 2013 and was then a bill about to go through Parliament. The other thing it included, by sheer luck, was super injunctions, and I say that with air quotes. Um, There was a big scandal about Ryan Giggs being named in Parliament, and there were also some other more serious ones about um, dumping of toxic waste and whether it was appropriate for, for those to not only be secret, but also the fact of there being an injunction not to be something that could be talked about in the public domain. Uh, As it happened, the human rights team were off with swine flu and it came to our team to deal with, including me. Uh, And I was part of the team that dealt with injunctions and how injunctions should be recorded, whether to find out whether there really was an issue or not, uh, including a response to a government paper, which I was involved in coordinating. So having done that, I, I got more and more into media law. When I interviewed in chambers, I could draw on my colleagues' experience of the defamation bill, Uh, and understand all the issues around that and speak to both that and the injunctions and privacy issues, which um, successfully got me pupillage. What does your professional life look like on a, let's say, a, I don't know, three-month basis? Well, although I was called in 2008, I didn't start pupillage till 2011 and wasn't taken on as a tenant until 2012. Um, But I have been there for a while now. Um, That's... I'm sure listeners of this podcast will know that getting pupillage isn't always easy these days. And it it took me a while and uh, was part of that winding road to end up where I am now. It really does vary day to day. I'm sure everybody says that, but it can be uh, doing some work on a pre-publication, reading reading a book, for example, is what I have just left on my desk to see what the issues are and writing a report for that that publisher to say, here's some areas of risk and what you might want to do about them. Uh, It can be appearing in court to get an injunction, whether that's in privacy or harassment, advising clients on data protection matters. That could be their policies. That could be they've got a subject access request in. Uh, What do we do? Um, Writing letters to a newspaper because they've defamed someone. It it can be a whole myriad of different things. Uh, I'm not in court that much, not in any way as much as a criminal or family lawyer would be. It goes in fits and starts. Sometimes you won't be in court for a couple of months. Sometimes you'll be in court three days in a row. Um, so it's it's not quite as advocacy heavy, certainly not at the junior end. As I said, the big cases will often have a QC involved. So even if you are there, you'll be sitting behind them while they do most of the talking. 
so you, you do have a bit of capacity to manage your practice in that way when it's advisory work, which can be quite nice. On the other hand, uh, urgent injunctions are urgent injunctions and the, the old Friday night call to the on-duty judge because the Sunday newspaper wants to do something is, is still alive and well. So how does that affect your lifestyle? I have been reasonably lucky in the last couple of years in being able to manage it uh, a bit better. I think after you've been in practice for about five years, you start to realise you have to develop the ability to say no occasionally. Um, you, at the start, you're so scared that you won't get any work that you say yes to everything and it becomes impossible. Uh, you, you lose your weekends, you lose your evenings, you're trying to do the maths of, oh, well, maybe I could physically fit that in if I don't go to dinner and I sleep for only four hours. And you realise that's not a healthy way to be, particularly if the matter isn't actually you know, they're going to publish this in the newspaper tomorrow. It's just a client wants advice tomorrow because they've decided they do, which is fair enough. But if they do, then I'm not the person who's going to be able to give it to them if I've already got quite a lot of other matters on. So that can be good. You know, you've, you've got that ability to manage your work, uh, which, which, which is helpful and which is one of the things that should be positive about a career at the bar. You're self-employed, you have that ability, but in practice can be very difficult to do. What can you tell us about, or what can you tell our listeners really about earnings, Felicity? What sort of range of earnings might a barrister in your area of practice expect, firstly, let's say in pupillage and then in the first two to five years? A pupillage awards are, I think, although I've not checked what the current rate is, they're, they're not super high. Uh, they're more than you would get in family or crime, but they're not the sort of levels that the big commercial firms are offering. Um, I think it's something like 30,000 pupillage mm-hmm. award. Um, my earnings, quite luckily, did go up reasonably quickly. I was lucky when I was taken on as a tenant, the Leveson inquiry was going on, and I got some work as a very junior junior on that over the summer, which tidied me over in that gap between your second pupillage award running out and you actually getting some money in. Yes. Because uh, the other thing that can tide you over as a baby or junior media lawyer is night lawyering. So going into the newspapers, reading the paper for the next day and flagging the issues. Uh, That is something I have only just stopped doing about a year ago, maybe a little less than a year ago, and that will get you paid every month because you get into the payment system of the newspaper, you're paid every month. And that will pay your rent or your mortgage, and that is extremely valuable. I was going to say that's a really important nugget of information, I think. It's really important, and it's... It's really good practice as well um, because you have to make decisions quickly. If you're sitting there going, pondering a newspaper article thinking, can I sue about this? You'll sit there all day thinking, well, what does this mean? What's the, you know, what exactly do all these words add up to? Whereas you've got to read an 80-page newspaper. It is going to print at 10 o'clock, whether you like it or not. So you have to make decisions very fast. And the, the in-house lawyers are extremely experienced and a lot of the journalists are extremely experienced as well and they'll teach you a lot. And it's called night lawyering. Night lawyering. Because you do it in the evenings. Yes. What time do you go in and how long does it take you? Uh, It depends on the paper. Usually something like five o'clock till whenever the paper goes, which, depending on how fast they're working, might be ten, half ten, might be eleven. But some papers are earlier than that. The Evening Standard have night lawyers and obviously that is shifted into the morning effectively. Um, And there's also work for TV companies of a similar nature. What happens if you identify something that you think is likely to cause a legal problem? Again, it depends on the newspaper and it depends how it came to you. Sometimes the journalist will come to you and say, I've got this story. I know it's potentially, um, you know, controversial. Can you read it and talk to me about it? And then you can talk to the journalist about it. Some newspapers have a system where you can write into the system 
here's an issue and here's my suggestion. Sometimes you have to go around the news floor and say, whose is this article on page two calling somebody a liar and a thief? Can I talk to you about it? I'm a lawyer. Um, which may or may not make you particularly popular. Do you know what sort of level of earnings barristers can expect after about 10 years call and up into silk in media law? Media law is one of the areas where you can earn a good living. Um, so that's, that's a bonus. Uh, it obviously depends on the individual and on how senior you are. But certainly uh, earning six figures is doable once you get to a certain level. But it really does vary because a lot of what we do is still on conditional fee agreements. Until April, we still had recoverable success fees. Um, that's only just gone in defamation and privacy. Uh, so you've always got that balance as well. A lot of claimant work will be on a, a conditional fee agreement because libel proceedings are so expensive half a million quid for libel yeah. trial costs, easily. And the ordinary person who has potentially been libelled by a newspaper cannot afford that. It is betting the house and more on whether you're going to be able to beat this big media organisation. Uh, so there is quite a lot of that work. But you don't have to do it, and defendant work obviously is paid, and there are some wealthy clients who are able to, um, you know, for them it's a point of principle and they're able to, to, to stump up the cash. What are the things you really love about your practice area? Um, I love... Dealing with words, <laughs> that sounds quite geeky, but it's true. So thinking about what words mean and, and how they're going to be interpreted by the ordinary reasonable reader, whatever, or whoever he or she may be. Um, I love getting paid to read books. That's great. That's the dream, isn't it? <laughs> uh, and I love even it. Even if you can't choose the books. Even if you, you know, some, sometimes there's the odd one that hasn't been my favourite, but there's been some that are absolutely great that didn't, I've really didn't, loved. Didn't you do the Adam Kay book? I did. <gasps> that was great. Oh, amazing. Great book. And to read them before becomes a big hit is incredible because every now and again you see a book that you like read in the big poster on the tube and you go oh I like that one yes you should read that one it's really good <laughs> and he makes quite a lot of jokes about being sued and he does although I think they were in there already I don't think it was I don't think it was me that triggered that but um, the other thing I love is when you really get to help people I did a case recently pro bono actually for a widow who wanted to get her family photos from Apple so her husband had passed away all or the majority of the family photos were in his iCloud account and Apple would not give it to her, even with a grant of probate. Oh, my goodness. Um, so we went to court and we did get an order in the end, but it was it's not obvious how you go about doing that. There were a number of tricky issues there. Um, and in the end, we got the order and her and her now 10-year-old daughter, I think she was six when her father died, have got access to all those family photos, which it did bring a tear to the eye, that one. I was, I was really pleased for the client when we were able to do that. And it's quite you know, an innovative case. and Yeah, that sounds amazing. And one that Congratulations. Really Thank That's you. great. Made the times and everything. It was quite exciting. Yeah. <laughs> what are the things you think that people should think about when considering um, this practice area? Think about um, whether you enjoy doing quite a bit of paperwork. Because as I said, it's, it's not that court heavy. Um, think about where you might be able to get experience of our area of law because maybe more people do study it uh, at undergraduate level now but I certainly didn't and even if you do studying and practice are, are quite different there's all sorts of interesting theoretical points about defamation law many of which you won't use every day uh, so things like getting work experience in a newspaper or a uh, tv company you can just write to them and ask some of them will will do that mini pupillages our chambers offers two uh, mini pupil sessions a year which there's an application process for, you can see on the 5RB website. Uh, and go to court if you can and watch a case, because they can be really interesting. But sometimes they can be 
quite dull. And it's it's not all glamorous. It is there's quite a lot of interim arguments about, you know, what do the words mean? Are they fact or opinion? Yeah. Let's sort out our costs budget. Um, which is not 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 quite the high glamour. Of, it's not hanging out with celebrities. It's really not. Um, and the, I'm afraid the bigger the celebrity, the, le- the less often you meet them. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> but if you were to think about other barristers in your field who you really admire, what sort of skills and aptitudes do they have which make them really sort of fantastic at their job? Um, it, it does vary from barrister to barrister. Some barristers are um, they have very different styles. There are very different courtroom styles in our area. There are some who are quite sort of aggressive. We had jury trials until recently. There are others who are very quiet, who talk very gently through the case law and the, the points they're trying to make, both of which are extremely effective. In terms of skill set, it is, and I expect this is true of lots of areas of law, but assimilating a lot of information quickly, um, thinking around the problem it will often come into you and they'll say this is defamation but it might not be it might be a privacy case might be a data protection case might be a harassment case um so you do have to think outside the box in terms of what your introductions are because you will often be dealing with or sometimes at least dealing with non-specialist solicitors who who aren't used to dealing with this area of law and need quite a bit of guidance yes um and the other thing is the ability to relate to 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 ordinary people to those clients yeah not only to relate to the client, but also because the test in libel is, meaning is what the ordinary reasonable reader would make of it. Now, that's not someone who sits there and studies it all day, because if you pick up the sun and read it, you don't sit there and study an article for three hours. You skim through it. And that can be quite important to try and sort of stand back from it and go, OK, well, you might think that this word means that, but what would you actually think if you were just reading it on the train? And that can be quite difficult to do when you're in your lawyer head. Yes, yes. No, I can completely see that, yeah. What has surprised you about working in media law? Um, I think the variety. How much different work comes in from different clients to different problems. How much it intersects with other areas of law or life. Defamation or privacy problems will often grow out of a family dispute or a neighbour dispute or a dispute in the local club um, about, you know, who should be admitted or whatever it might be, whether you should be allowed to wear, not wear ties or whatever it might be. Uh, so having that broader understanding is extremely useful of other areas of law, um, of other areas of life. I mean, whenever you're doing... When you've got to read a newspaper in the next hour, it is very important to have some good current affairs knowledge to understand um, what's going on here and what the context is. Do you know, if there's a story about match-fixing in cricket, do you know what the background to that is, in that there's you know, been quite a bit going on about that? Or, the, you know, say, cycling. You need to know that Lance Armstrong had all his Tour de France stripped to understand the context of stories about doping in sport or whatever it might be. I mean, you've talked a bit about the work experience that you would recommend for people interested in this area of practice. Are there any additional qualifications um, people might need? If they, like you, find that they've only had half a seminar on media law, but they're really interested, is there something that they could do? I don't think you need any additional qualifications. Uh, Chambers is, my chamber certainly is quite aware that it's not like crime that you will have studied it from your first year of undergraduate and of course plenty of people convert to law and will only have done a small bit of any topic um, if you want to there are courses out there uh, I know 
various of the London universities, for example, offer, offer courses in this sort of thing. Um, but you may not need to. I think you can get a lot of information from, from reading, from following people on Twitter. There are some excellent media lawyers on Twitter who will give you the basics. Um, there's, a, there's a book called McNay's Essential Law for Journalists, which is the one the journalists use, which is extremely handy and not huge and not hugely expensive. Um, that would be, I think, useful for people to read if they wanted to. Um, I don't think you need... I, I mentioned I have a master's degree, and I do, but I did a master's degree because I wanted to do a master's degree, not because I thought it was necessary for what I was going to do, and I don't think it was necessary, although useful and interesting, and if you want to do one, go ahead. Is um, media law something that is a standalone practice, or do practitioners often have sidelines in other areas of law? It is a standalone practice. Chambers is a specialist chambers, and that's what we do. On the other hand, people will have their own interests, and lots of what we do does cross over into other areas of law. Um, something like harassment, say, there will usually be a, a freedom of speech angle in that harassment these days will often include people publishing stuff on social media or handing out leaflets is less common now, but still happens, um, or standing outside someone's place of work shouting about how dreadful they are. So that, that I suppose, is more standard harassment. Colleagues who do, and I sometimes do, reporting restrictions means you will appear in different courts, family courts, criminal courts. My one and only very brief appearance at the Old Bailey was on account of a reporting restriction. Um, so it can cross over, and if you've got a particular interest or you've come from another area of law, people do keep those up. So it's not impossible at all. There's no, there's no clash, as it were. Um, but it is very much a, a specialist practice area and something that really you do need specialist counsel for if, a, if, a, if, if you're pleading a libel claim there's some quite tricky rules that are specific to this area that you need to know yeah felicity mcmahon thank you very much for coming and talking to us on the pupilage podcast you're welcome thank you for having me master page was called to the bar by middle temple in 1974 and became a tenant at the chambers now known as 5rb in the early part of her career, she was regularly chosen to be the junior to the then doyen of the libel bar, George Carman QC. She's continued to be at the top of her profession ever since in all things privacy, media and defamation related. She took silk herself in 1999, was joint head of chambers at 5RB for eight years, has served as a recorder and as a venture of Middle Temple. Finally, she's one of the brains behind the popular Middle Temple Survive and Thrive events. We are really delighted that she's agreed to come and talk to us about her practice at the Media Bar. Very big welcome. Thank you, Master Page. Thank you. So, Master Page, you are a silk practising media law. Um, how did you choose that practice area? Well, actually, I didn't choose it. It's more that it chose me. Um, it was pure accident that I ended up in a chamber's that did defamation work. It was literally only when I arrived to start my pupillage in the end of September in 1974 that I discovered that the Chambers did not practice in company law or EU law, but had a specialist strand in something called defamation. I had actually never even heard of defamation. <laughs> Goodness me. I don't think that could happen today. I think if you walked into a pupillage interview for a defamation set without knowing what defamation was, I think you'd be shown the door. Yeah. You wouldn't, you wouldn't <laughs> yes. get an interview. No. What sort of disputes and legal issues then do you deal with in your practice at the moment? That's to say in your practice as a silk. Well, the largest proportion of my work is defamation and that concerns disputes 
involving individuals and sometimes organisations versus the media. So principally, it's complaints about libel, complaints about privacy invasions, and to a lesser extent, complaints against broadcasters that they've breached the Ofcom code and against newspapers that they have breached the Ipso Editors Code of Practice, that's the Independent Press Standards Organisation. So, for instance, one can complain to these regulators on such subjects as fairness and accuracy, even where a defamation or privacy com complaint would not stand up in law. And what sort of relief would you get? Uh, well, of course, it depends on whether you're... You mean in the... Um, on the regulatory? Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, that, that's a very good question. A ruling in your favour, if you succeed, and they may require the broadcast or the publication of a statement about the ruling. What you don't get, uh, so for example, in the case of Ipso, they can say that the newspaper should apologise, but they cannot enforce the, the, the apology, and they will not require the newspaper to take the article off, off the online version of the newspaper. So relief is a little bit limited, and that is one of the reasons why people, if they have a, a legal route to a complaint, and they can fund it or they can get a conditional fee agreement um, with their lawyers, prefer that route. Do you tend to act for both sides in these sorts of cases, or do you have a particular type of client? Well, for a large part of my career, especially in my mid to late years as a junior barrister, my clients were mainly newspapers and broadcasters. So for a long time, I did mainly defendant work. Things, as it happens, have switched around somewhat since then, and I now mainly seem to get instructed for claimants, although I do have some work for publisher defendants. The newspapers tend to not like instructing barristers who also take cases against them. They perceive that there is a conflict of interest and they can be quick to stop instructing you if your name turns up. So my clients now are mainly individuals and organisations. They either have made it into the news for some reason in a, in a fashion that they would prefer they hadn't or who are trying to prevent themselves getting into the news. The clients cover a wide spectrum from public figures to highly private figures if I think of the cases on which I'm actively working as of today, current clients include an MP, a hedge fund owner, a health food manufacturer, a doctor, a diet book author, a charity, a member of the House of Lords and a political lobbying organisation. Wow, what a spread. Yes. <laughs> In terms of court hearings, would that mean that you would do injunctions and trials? Yes, um, uh, injunctions normally uh, involve a silk. Um, anything to do with a master would not involve um, a silk. There would always be a junior doing it. But a silk is usually brought in if there's going to be an injunction either sought or resisted. Um, and, and actually, one of, one of the unfortunate aspects of it is that the newspapers, the weekend newspapers, give notice on Friday that they plan to publish something, they ask for a comment... And from time to time, one's weekend is wiped out by either attempting to get an injunction or resisting somebody's attempt to get an injunction. Um, and then, of course, trials. One doesn't necessarily have a silk at a trial because it's highly cost-sensitive. And if the client can, is wealthy, can afford it, 
and doesn't mind if he doesn't recover the costs, then he may well want a silk, even in circumstances where the judge would say this trial didn't merit to counsel, or you might be asked to do it on your own without a junior. Um, but um, for the smaller trials nowadays, it tends to be two mid to senior juniors against each other. You mentioned hearings in front of masters. Um, some of our listeners won't be familiar with what masters are. And of course, in the, the law, there are various different types of masters. There are masters of the bench, like you. Yes. There are costs masters. And the type of master I think you're referring to is a Queen's Bench master. Yes. Can yes. you tell our listeners what they do? Queen's Bench masters deal with the um, sort of lower level court work in high court cases, high court civil cases. Um, they do the case management aspects of it. Um, they also do the cost. We have cost budgeting now, which is not done by the cost judges. It's done by the, the QB masters, as we call them. Queen's Bench masters um, wouldn't do in a defamation case, would try the case, um, that they, and, and they wouldn't decide anything um, particularly contentious. They would send it up to a specialist media law judge. But... Uh, they can't grant injunctions, at least that, I think that is still the case, that they can't, they can't grant injunctions. So if you need an injunction, you, go, you have to go to the judge. And you mentioned the effect of um, this practice area on occasional weekends. How, how does it affect your lifestyle? How, what would you say to people who are thinking about this kind of practice? Well, uh, we spend most days in chambers. Um, that there, there isn't a huge amount of court work. And that means that one can plan evenings, uh, leaving aside those occasions when there's an urgent need for an injunction or to resist an injunction, but one can plan one's evenings knowing that other than in that situation you can expect to be able to honour social commitments. So I think that life is, is really quite pleasant and it's also common now, I think, across the bar for us to dress down for a day in chambers, wearing jeans or if, if you're on a hot day you can come in in your shorts because you're going to spend the day in your room or amongst your colleagues. Uh, but, of course, that, that's fine if you like that sort of bar life, if, of course, you want to be in court every day and that's what particularly um, turns you on, then you, you might think that the lifestyle is not what you would want. And what are the things, Master Page, that you really love about your practice? In terms of daily life, um, I like what I've just described. I very much like working in a chambers. Um, being a 100% specialist in a confined area of law, we're small enough that we all know each other and there's so much collegiality, mutual support and friendliness. In terms of the work, um, taking in particular defamation, there are two aspects that I think make it a particularly um, fascinating area in which to work. The first thing is that it's all about the meaning of words. So what does an article or what does a broadcast convey to the readers or the listeners about the complainant? So one has to enjoy careful textual analysis. The second thing following on from this is that the factual subject matter um, in which you generally have to seriously immerse yourself could be absolutely anything. It depends upon the subject of the publication that's complained of or the subject that you want to not have published in the newspaper. 
So to take a, a topical subject, if the complaint is the publication of an allegation of anti-Semitism, the barrister will need to immerse themselves in the accepted definitions of anti-Semitism and analyse carefully the writing, sayings or conduct of the person against whom that charge has been published. So in that example, one is steeping oneself in and indeed sharpening one's understanding of a subject that happens to be of immense topical public interest, and that is a benefit in one's life outside the bar. Another of the cases I'm currently working on requires me to immerse myself in the medical evidence that either supports or challenges the orthodox theory as to how a particular disease, I won't mention it otherwise I shall be giving something away, uh, is caused in humans, and in the benefits and side effects of a particular drug that is currently amongst the first line of preventive medicine. And that is currently the subject of, or about to be the subject of libel complaints. I mean, I, I maybe I'm afraid about to expose my ignorance here, but is, is it not the case that one defence to a claim for libel is that what is said is true? That is so exactly, yes. presumably, from what you've said, you need to be in a position to evaluate whether that is going to be a defence that's going to succeed. And as yes. you say, it must be brilliant that, I mean, it could be anything. Yes, exactly, yes. It is a complete defence that if you can prove the substantial truth... Um, and that, of course, is what you'll always explore, except in a case where it's very obviously um, something like um, what the issue might be whether or not it's a fair and accurate report of a debate in Parliament or fair and accurate court of uh, fair and accurate report of court proceedings, or where it's very obvious that it's an opinion piece. So I did um, the case for uh, Simon Singh against the chiropractors, um, which gained a bit of celebrity for the implications for free speech, and that had been a comment piece in The Guardian, um, and he was seeking to defend it as comment. Uh, we had a bit of a hiccup when the judge said it was not a comment, it was a fact, but we got that put right in the Court of Appeal. And there's also a public interest defence where um, you can defend something that you have published that is untrue as well as defamatory because... Uh, it is in the public interest that that you should say what you've said. So some absolutely fascinating arguments then on what is true and what is in the public interest yes. to be had in all sorts of corners of life. Absolutely. Well, actually, in the, the, the example I gave of anti-Semitism, which there seems to be quite a lot of libel cases around about anti-Semitism at the moment, um, in some context, to say someone is anti-Semitic could be an opinion which makes it much easier to... You just have to have an honest belief in it, providing you've got a sufficient factual substrate. In other cases, it will be an allegation of fact. Now, you, you, know, you, you end up dancing on a pinhead, and this is where the textual analysis becomes so important. As, as you, for a claimant, you want to, as far as possible, to persuade the judge that what's been said is an allegation of fact, not an expression of opinion. For a defendant, you want the judge to find that it is an opinion because that makes your ability to defend it that much easier. One of the things that we encounter in our police law practice are particular protected kinds of material that the police can't seize. And one of those is journalistic Indeed, material. yes. And it must be terribly difficult where you're 
defending a journalist who has been accused of defamation, who has, say, a, sort, a confidential source who won't, has refused to be named, gone on the record, and they've been given those guarantees of confidentiality, and the journalist has to defend themselves, but without that major piece of evidence. How do you go about doing that? It is difficult. Uh, it shouldn't be difficult in that um, journalist sources, confidential sources are, as you say, they are protected other than some exceptions under the Contempt of Court Act 1981, such as where it's necessary in the interest of justice or national security. Um, however, um, the reality is that you feel that if you can't produce the witness uh, who provided the absolute critical information that gave rise to a serious defamatory allegation, that you are going to struggle to show a public interest. Um, you, you would have to produce a witness, almost certainly, if you were going to prove truth. So it mainly arises in the context of a public interest defence, where you were saying, I had a, a, a gold standard source, uh, absolutely uh, cannot breach the confidence of that source, um, but I will persuade you, the court, that... Um, this story was in the public interest, notwithstanding that you have no idea who it was who uh, provided me with the information. Deep Throat doesn't necessarily have to come out of the car park and no, give evidence. No, absolutely not. <laughs> no. <laughs> what do you think then, Master Page, are the skills that someone working in this area absolutely needs to have in order to flourish? Well, it's good that your question refers to skills because skills need not be innate but can be acquired. Three things come to mind. I think that the most important skill to develop, and this applies to any area of practice at the bar, is the mastery of the facts of the case and of the applicable law. And that means being prepared to spend the time necessary for intense study of the papers and of the relevant cases the barrister that has total command of the detail of a case is far less likely to make unforced errors or to prioritise bad points over good points. You also need to keep learning. You must learn from every experience you have, whether in court or in a conference with a client. Learn the lessons. In the early years, if... Uh, like I was, you are thin-skinned and would cringe for weeks after every less-than-satisfactory appearance in court, you will find the process of examining what went wrong or did not go sufficiently right so painful that one doesn't want to go there. One's tendency in those circumstances is to self-justify in order not to confront the reality, which is that you were not up to the job or not sufficiently prepared or you agreed to do something for which you were too busy or which you should have known you were not sufficiently experienced to do. I feel that the more you learn by confronting your mistakes and trying to be insightful, fewer things go wrong, your confidence grows and your quality of life at the bar significantly improves. I think that your first point there, Master Page, about um, being really on top of your brief underlines for me why it's so important that people at the very beginning of their career or people who are choosing where to apply for pupillage 
need to think so carefully about their area of law because the reality is you have got to know everything about your case and if it's not something that excites you you're going to resent the time and effort that it takes indeed yes thank you master page ever so much for coming to talk to us today pleasure thank you for listening to the pupillage podcast with us beatrice collier and georgina wolf brought to you by middle temple production support and music by alex Dopirana. please check out the show notes for more on our guests links to sources of information and a glossary of terms used in each episode <laughs>